Hello, I'm Lara Hamilton. Welcome to Book Larder Podcast, where we share author talks from the kitchen of Seattle's Community Cookbook Shop. Today, we're talking about bread, particularly sourdough bread. Baking bread has become extremely popular in the past few years, and in the cooler months in particular, my staff and I spend a lot of time with customers helping them choose books that guide them through the process of making a sourdough starter. It can seem really intimidating. While it's only a few ingredients, the process of getting fermentation to happen and then feeding and keeping the starter alive can seem like a lot of work. Today's guest hopes to demystify that process and encourages you to relax and have fun with your bread baking. Cynthia Lair is an author and founder of Bastyr University's Nutrition and Culinary Arts Program. Her latest book, Sourdough on the Rise, will have you making whole grain breads at home with minimal fuss with its approachable style and delicious recipes. Cynthia showed us how to make sourdough starter in our kitchen in October 2019. Here's Cynthia Lair and Sourdough on the Rise. Hi, thank you for coming out and getting in a bunch. (laughs) That's so good. I'm going to show you how to make a starter because it's so easy. And the thing is, people get really excited about, oh, sourdough bread, I want to make sourdough bread. Just the other day, I was having a phone call with someone, and they said, well, where do I get a starter? And I'm like, well, you can make it. He said, oh, oh, okay. And um, the thing is, though, if you don't have a relationship with your starter, in other words, if you don't know its kind of personality and how to take care of it, say you go borrow a starter from me. I'm not going to give you one, but say you did that. (laughs) Say you did that, and then uh, you, but you didn't know anything. You didn't have, you didn't make it from scratch. You know, you don't have a relationship with it. And I bet you might make one loaf of bread and like, oh, I don't really know. And then, then what you do is you come to my class and I go, how many of you have had a starter before, but you thought it died? Go ahead. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. It probably didn't die. So there's that good news for you. <laughs> uh, although you probably didn't know that at the time, but um, we'll go over that. I, I started saying lately that, you know, you sort of, it's sort of knowing your starter and having a relationship with it before you make bread is sort of like, well, you want to date someone for a little while before you have children. <laughs> and then I thought about saying that, and I'm not sure that metaphor works, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to keep it anyway. Um, <laughs> so I brought with me Dottie. This is Dottie. She was my first starter. I have three. I had four while I was... Uh, testing recipes for the book, but she's the original one, and she went through some tough periods at times, and she still lived. She's about 10 years old, maybe 12, I'm not sure, which is pretty young for a starter. The first piece of mythology that I'll just debunk for you, and it's in the book as well, is that I have a double life. I also do uh, improvisational theater and acting. And I was doing this video, and uh, I was at some doctor's house. And 
And I noticed he had a bunch of books about fermentation in, on his, in his shelf. And so I said, oh, are you interested in fermentation? Yeah. And I said, well, I'm writing a book about sourdough. And he said, oh, well, I got my starter, a wooden cask that was 100 years old in Norway. <laughs> and I said, oh, okay. I bet you paid a lot for that. And he, well, that's all he said, well. <laughs> and I said, well, what happened? And he said, uh, well, it died. And I said, oh, well, it's really easy to make one. And he said, oh, no, 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 I'll be ordering another one. And that was my first exposure to sourdough elitism. I, I, <laughs> uh, I didn't know that that existed. And, and so the first thing that you need to understand about a starter is it's a living organism here. I'll tell you who's in there in a second. And it's dynamic. That means it's changing all the time. It's changing its flavor. It's changing its smell. It's changing its taste. Everything is changing all the time. And of course, the microorganisms, aka friendly bacteria, and the wild yeast that inhabit a starter, um, they, they live and they die, and they live and they die, and they live and they die. So because you got your starter that it was advertised on the internet as having come from a saddlebag in the 1800s. <laughs> um, good for you. But uh, the thing is that that starter doesn't have the same folks in it that it had. It's not possible because they live and they die and they live and they die and they live and they die. Is anybody disappointed and upset about that? <laughs> in fact... I was reading a, a book be, after I wrote the book, which is what happens to all of us, about how in Korea they talk about kimchi as having hand taste. What that means is that the, the flavor of your starter is going to be individual to you and your home. And they did a, actually they did a, a study where they took you know, 100 bakers, and then they took samples of, of, the, of the bacteria on their hands, and they took 100 breads, and then they matched them up, and they matched up perfectly. So that tells you something about how personal this is, okay? Are you okay with that? Now, one more thing. One more thing is I worked down at Unexpected Productions doing a, a improvisational theater. And my friend Sarah is here. She's also in the company. And we have a game that we play sometimes in a show, and it's called Question Period. And the way that the game's played is we're on stage and we're doing a scene. But you, the audience, if you're like, I don't, well, why did he jump up and down right then? Or why did he pet the cat, or why are they going to fall in love, or anything like that. As an audience you, member, you can raise your hand and say, question period, just like that. And we all stop, and we take your question, and we answer your question, and, and then we go on with the scene. Did I explain that well? <laughs> so instead of like, I talk and talk and talk, and then we stop, and then you ask me questions, questions, questions. Anytime you have a question, just raise your hand and say, question, period. And we'll all stop, and we'll go, what? Let's find out. Because if you have a question about something I'm saying, I'm just guessing that at least five other people have a similar question or might have a, a related question, and I, I don't mind being interrupted at all. Are you good? Anybody have a question right now? Do you want to practice question period? One person, raise your hand and say, question period. 
Oh, that was so quiet. Can you say a little? Yeah, what's your question? Yeah. Is there a difference between a wet starter and a dry starter? Oh, that's good. Okay, let's make one. So this will take like five minutes. I love that. This is Dottie. First of all, Dottie's pretty frothy. I like that. And I'm going to put some of Dottie in this bowl here and pass it around and so that you can smell it. And it should smell kind of like beer. I mean, it's, it's a yeasty, frothy thing. Okay, so who's in a starter? Who's in the starter is microorganisms, i.e. friendly bacteria, but people worry when you say the word bacteria. I don't, but my publisher was like, oh, don't say bacteria, and I'm like, I'm going to. Anyway, <laughs> um, friendly bacteria or microorganisms, which, are, which naturally occur on all grains. And the other thing that's in there is wild yeast from the air in your hands and everywhere. When the flower hits water, it wakes up the microorganisms. And they're like, huh, this is pretty nice here, okay? And then if there's wild yeast in there, they're like, huh, let's work together. So the microorganisms eat the flour you feed it, and they convert it into sugars, from starches to sugars. And the yeast love sugar, and they eat sugar. And then when the yeast die, it's a little bit of protein for the microorganisms. So they live together, and they feed each other. You still have to give some food to the, to the friendly bacteria. And the, the yeast actually is pretty fond of white flour. But they just live together like that. Now, when they, they live, they die, they live, they die. If you, when you store something in the refrigerator, you're going to find this. When you take it out, there's this little layer of liquid on the top. Um, and it can be light gray, it can be just clear beige, it can be kind of whitish, but it's there. That scares people and they go, oh, it's ruined, I'm throwing it out. But that's not true. What that is, is it's the elimination of the microorganisms in the wild yeast. Yeah? And we call that hooch. It's a good name for it because it's really sour. And so if you stir it back into your starter, your starter gets more sour. I like a tangy sour, a, a really tangy starter myself, so I always stir it back in. You'll see stuff on the crazy internet that tells you to pour it off, but I would never do that because I want my bread to have that tang, and there's reasons for that, and I'll get to that later. Okay, so in this jar right here is about a half a cup of flour, and I put in some white flour and some rye flour. The four flours that I mostly work with are whole wheat flour. Oh, this is whole white flour, or it's also called ivory flour, which is very odd. It's a breed of whole wheat where the gene that uh, makes it be a color is turned off. That's it. Bob's Red Mill makes some of that. And rye. Rye is great. And this is unbleached white flour. Those are the four I work with the most, I would say. Again, there's Flower elitism, too. You know, I do try to buy always organic flowers because I don't really want any glyphosate in there because that kills bacteria. And I also try to buy from local folks as much as possible. But I don't need to, like, go out and grow my own field of heirloom wheat and harvest it. I'm not there yet. So <laughs> uh, and I'm sure it's better. I'm sure it's better, but I don't, I don't do that. So this has a little rye and a little white flour. And I usually 
uh, encourage people to use both whole grains flours and a little unbleached white flour because one, it is a little more, the, the microorganisms like it and the yeast like the other, and you want both to be happy. Okay, so there it is. And then I'm going to put some warm water in, and yes, I stuck my finger in this water. I don't care. <laughs> I, I'm surf save certified, so don't give me trouble about not knowing my uh, thing. But with, these, with sourdough and with breads, you want your hands involved. You want hand taste, right? And I'm going to stir it up, and I'm going for about 150% hydration. When I first read about hydration over a decade ago, I was just like, that's too much for me. But it, it actually it turns out to be rather important because the hydration level needs to be a certain, it has to be consistent for you so that you know what bread you're making and what they're calling for. So all of the breads in my book call for about 100, 150% hydration level. And what that means is the uh, viscosity of pancake batter. And you will see hydration levels that are higher and lower in different bread things. And that was confusing to me. So all mine are the same pancake batter consistency. But if you picked up another book, if you had 150% hydration level starter and you picked up a book and it said, start with your you know, 225% hydration starter, you would have some trouble because the, the uh, liquid-to-dry ratio would be off. That doesn't mean you can't correct it. Ooh, I got too technical, and I saw you all fall asleep. <laughs> okay, so I'm working on this. Did you, are you smelling Dottie? How's it smell? Good? Bad? Sort of, yes. Yes! Yes! Oh, that's such a good question. See? It's so good. I chose that because I wanted something that was pourable because I think that's easier to work with, but not so thin that I was going to get confused with the water. So uh, it's kind of its own pancake better. It's like, oh, I get this. Yeah. I thought also that it would be a friendly viscosity to describe in a book. So I'm just stirring it and making sure that I like this, this uh, viscosity. That's it. <gasps> yes, sir. Say question period. I like it. Yes. What would the implication or outcome be of this? You have a starter going, say you've always had but just use all-purpose flour. Then you're like, oops, I accidentally fed this with rye flour this time. Good. I do. That's a good question. But the sour flavor of the, the acetic acid and that flavor in the starter is so strong. I personally don't have the nuanced taste buds to taste the difference. I did an experiment when I was writing the book and I kept one starter completely rye, only rye. And I named it rye. Y-R-Y. No, W-R-Y. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I named it rye. And I tasted them all the time. And I couldn't, I couldn't detect that strong of a difference because like I said, I keep my starters so tangy that that was the predominant taste to it. Rye flour is so different. I love rye flour because it's, it's so high in minerals and it has such a wonderful taste to it. But rye flour, I'm going to get sciency again, so don't get sleepy. If you're getting sleepy because I get sciency, you got to come up and eat something so I don't lose you. The, the rye flour has this 
<laughs> it has a certain thing in it called pentosans, okay? It's very high in pentosans, and, um, which is a naturally occurring polysaccharide. And the pentosans compete with the gluten for water, which means that if you made a bread with, or even this one with all rye, you're not going to get a rise out of it at all because it, it bogarted all the water, basically. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's what happened. And um, I, th I think that's kind of fun and interesting. However, I also learned that just a little bit of rye flour in a whole wheat bread recipe of any kind makes the wheat taste tweetier. And I spent probably six months trying to validate why that was, and I couldn't find that, but I definitely found that to be true. But too much, and it's going to mess with the gluten. Okay, we're almost done. Then it's fine. That's it. Now I'm going to take a... Um, I'm all about handicaps. I like success. And so I do a lot of things uh, within my bread recipes that um, people, other people might not do because I want them to turn out well. And one of the things that I've done in the book is I've used about 75% whole grain in all the recipes, which is harder, way, way, way harder. You can get a loaf of all white bread to rise so easy, and the, the fiber and the bran and the heaviness of whole wheat is really hard to get a rise like that. So I'll tell you those tricks in a minute, but I'm all about little shortcut little tricks that help that. I'll also tell you why I want the whole grains in there. Okay, so this is a grape. <laughs> and uh, grape, <laughs> I know, this is so cute. And grapes naturally have this little kind of like blush on them, that little white stuff on there. And most people rinse that off, and I don't care if you do to eat it, but not for this purpose. Because what that little white blushy stuff is on that grape is wild yeast. So by putting it in there, yay, it's going to attract more wild yeast from the air. And I learned that from Sandor Katz's book, Wild Fermentation. So I, yeah, let's do it. Let's have it in there. And then um, if you do have a friend with a starter, what you want, you don't want to take their whole starter, but just ask them for a teaspoon because this will um, become a starter faster with that little dot of dotty in there. Then I'm going to cover it like this. I like low-tech um, equipment, and it's done. Now what happens is, and this is pretty important, is it needs to stay warm at about 78 degrees, 78 to 82, and you need to feed it every day or two, okay? And I wrote very, very, very precise instructions. Day one, do this. Day two, do this. Day three, do this. Which might annoy some people, but other people feel more comfortable when they have that, that uh, level of detail. If you're a more intuitive cook, trust me, you're not probably going to hurt it if you miss a day or something. But if you're like, I want the rules, they're there. Okay, so it needs to be warm, and it needs to be warmer than your house. So you're going to have to think, think about where am I going to keep it, where I can feed it every other day, but I also am keeping it really warm. So maybe there's a, a place on top of the refrigerator that's a lot warmer, or maybe you have a really old 
oven that has a pilot light in there that stays on in all the time. So it's a little bit warmer. Or maybe you have one of those little thermoses that carries a, a six pack and you could put a hot water bottle in there and a towel and it would be happy in there. I've made yogurt and those a lot. But those first 10 to 14 days, it needs to stay warm. Yes. Why does it have to be warm? Because I know that you can keep a starter in the refrigerator. That's after you've gotten it populated. Yeah. Tell me why. You're you're keeping it warm to populate it. And uh, there's not enough folks in there yet. And they thrive at that temperature. Does that make sense? At my house, there's a, a closet that's kind of in the middle of the house that traps heat. And I, I've started starters in there. There's sheets and pillowcases in there. Maybe that helps too. I don't know. But uh, I have a whole list of ideas in the book about where you can keep your starter that might keep it warm. Another thing it would be one of those, if you are a gardener, one of those seed things that you set stuff on. So keeping it in a wool hat, that will keep it warmer. Yeah, there's lots of fun ideas. Yes, question period. Yes. Uh, when you take the grape out. Once the starter is established. So what does that mean? That means that on the morning that I uh, put some flour in there and I stir it, and I see bubble, 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 lots of bubbles, then you know there's things alive in there, the bubbling. The grape doesn't get I mean, if you left it in there forever, it would just eat it. But um, you can take it out once once it's established. Yes. Yes. So um, other than the natural yeast, does the flavor and sugar content of the fruit you choose change the profile of the starter? So let's say you use a different fruit. Well, you do want to use a fruit that has the white stuff on it. Yeah, the powdery stuff on there. Yeah. Uh, plums now, right now, would have that in there. I'm telling you, for me, anyway, the tang just takes that. It's just way, way, way more of a flavor note than anything else you put in there. Now, a Sandor, I mean, he used to say you can throw your oatmeal in there, but it takes a long time to eat oatmeal. Like, I, I make bread too often to be doing that kind of thing. So, yeah. So this this being here, what it loves is food and exercise, right? So the food, that's easy. What do I mean by exercise? What I mean by exercise is stirring. It really likes stirring a lot. And also what I mean by exercise, which doesn't really, the metaphor again doesn't quite work, but is throwing some of it out, leaning it out. Because if if you just build it up and build it up and build it up, it's going to get lazy, too big, too lazy because there's not enough microbes in there for the amount of food that you put in. So think huge Thanksgiving dinner, this whole buffet filled with food and only two people eating it. They're like so tired after that meal. (laughs) (laughs) And there's a lot of leftover food and everybody's just passed out. Well, that's a lazy starter. So you'll see in the directions of making your starter that you, on certain days, if it's above a certain level, you're going to toss out half of it. Don't be afraid of that. Now, if you are, I saw, I saw panicked eyes out there. 
If you're afraid of that or that bothers you, what it's not even a penny's worth of food, but that's okay. But um, here's here's what you do. You save it in a jar till you've got a whole cup of it and you make pancakes that week. Because the pancake recipe is in there for two reasons. They're called flapjacks. One is who doesn't love flapjacks? The second reason is, especially sourdough ones, with maple syrup, oh, please, that's so good. But um, the second reason is that it's a great thing to do. If your starters have gotten a little big and you haven't used them, you can pour, pour some off and kind of lean it out, is what I would call it. So, yeah, yes? Uh, why do you make so many starters instead of just using one all the time? Oh, just because I was writing a book, and now because I'm doing a bunch of book things. However, I did attend a conference once where uh, uh, maybe this man was fearful, I don't know, but he was a bread baker, a sourdough bread baker, and he encouraged everyone to keep two starters just in case. (laughs) So that, I don't know. Now, I probably, once I'm through you know, making tons and tons of bread, which I'm doing right now, I will probably just go back to two because I'm a little bit attached to the second one. Her name is Fizz. So I name my starters. And when I teach class, I always bring a roll of masking tape and a Sharpie and I encourage people to name it. And I encourage them to name it after something that they, someone, some pet, some, something that they have some kind of good feeling about, not a bad feeling about. Um, And that seems corny. I know it seems corny. I even had somebody say, oh, that's ridiculous. But it's not ridiculous because you're not going to forget about it so much if it's got a name. You might take better care of it. Yeah. Dottie's named after my, um, well, the fact that it looks like a bunch of dots when she's excited. (laughs) But um, also, Dottie was the name of my mother's best friend when I was a little little girl. And Fizz was my favorite aunt, Aunt Phyllis, who we called Fizz. So, (laughs) yeah. So Dottie's looking really pretty good right now, but you can kind of see this kind of crusty buildup here. It's really not much right now. And in another week or two, it will be thicker and maybe even a little bit gray. And that's the point where people go, oh, it's ruined. I have to throw it out. It's not the least bit ruined. There's nothing ruined about it. A little gray, a little crusty. That's, if it bugs you, take a little paring knife and just take it out. The only time that it's bad, bad that you need to throw it out is the color pink, that's bad. The color pink is in general bad for all food. (laughs) And a putrid taste and smell. And I mean putrid. Yeah. So people are are awed about this. They're, They're scared to taste a starter. But I encourage you to taste your starter often because you want to know, oh, is it sour? Hmm, I'd like this to be tangier. And there's a whole list of things to do in there to make it tangier. Or, oh, that's too tangy for me. My bread tastes too tangy. I want to tame it down a little bit. And there's a whole list of things for you to do to to get that to happen as well. The, The time that it's most susceptible for going bad 
is in hot, hot, hot weather in the summer on the counter. Uh, on the counter at 80 degrees or more, like 85, that is, you're risking pink. Yes. Question period. What if the pink is on the hooch? It has to be really pink. Okay, so like a light pink liquid is okay. <laughs> this, this, this is where you take a picture of it and send it to me, right? And, I, and I'm like, I, I don't know. I can't tell. Taste it. And if it is just awful, I mean, just like that's not something, any taste that you like. It's not beer. It's not tangy. It's nothing like that. It's like, ah, yeah, you've got some problems. But even then, I have brought a starter back to life. I know. I know this is going to be my legacy, Dr. <laughs> Dr. Starter. I have uh, left one out on the counter too long and let it go bad, and, and I have caught it, and I've thrown out most of it. I've saved like a tablespoon or two, got a clean jar, started over, even put a grape in there, and everything was fine. Question period. Does it matter what kind of container you keep it in? Thank you. Thank you so much. This is fine. I mean, it can go in the refrigerator, you know, with the lid on like that. I like the Fido jars that have the seal and the, I, I keep most of my fermented things like krauts and all of that in those kind of jars. I like those because um, usually, not right now, but usually I don't bake every day. And so it's going to go in the refrigerator for a little bit, and then it's going to come out. And this, this type of jar lets CO2 escape but doesn't let oxygen in, and that works really well for fermented things. I like to keep it pretty, like, accessible. I like to use accessible ingredients as much as possible and have the tools be accessible rather than sourdough elitism, right? <laughs> Question period. Question yeah. So you have a starter in the refrigerator that's been sitting there for... Not that long. Go ahead. Let's say a month. Oh, a month. That's tricky. That's a little dicey. I, I, I actually find that mine, mine demand to be taken out and taken care of about every seven to ten days. But let's say you're going to Europe for two months. Good for you. I'm not, but whatever. <laughs> Um, so the, I think this was the highlight of my, my recipe testing days was, uh, I read that you could freeze a starter and I'm like, I just can't believe this could possibly work. But I took about a half a cup of starter and a half a cup of flour and made a ball. And I put it in the freezer in an airtight little container and labeled it. And I left it in there for... It was either four or six months. I was just terrified. And I brought it out. I brought it to room temp. I put warm water on it, and it bubbled. And I, I was just like, yeah! It was just amazing to me. Which leads me to these, the, the bacteria on the planet. You know, you know that the planet started by bacteria coming in on a meteor. And which somebody argued about on a web, uh, once when I had this blog post about it, about, no, that's not how the earth started. I won't go there. Anyway, <laughs> yeah, it got into a, a religious argument, in which I was like, oh, gosh, bye. Um, 
but um, you know, bacteria I've learned can I learned they can handle freezing. And I also learned that they actually survived the heating process in the oven, which no one could believe. But I found some research about it. And actually, it, not all of them survived the baking process because it's a pretty stressful journey. But some do. And when the bread cools, they begin to uh, proliferate for up to four days, which confirmed on that same blog post some people would tell me that they could restart a starter with a piece of bread from a piece of sourdough bread. Yeah, so so the bacteria is there. Yes, question period. Question yeah. Period. I just wanted to follow up on that real quick. Does that mean if there's like a sourdough bread from a place that you really like and you just want their starter but they're not gonna give it to you? Yes, but what's gonna what's gonna happen to that bacteria? Well, eventually it's gonna die, and what's gonna inhabit your starter is you and your yeast and your hand taste and you 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 you. But you can kick it off that way. I suppose. Question Yes. This is my husband Michael, so setup question. Good. White flour is so much easier. Why do you work so hard? to use the, do it the hard way with whole grain flour. Okay. And you have to tell them all these ways to work with whole grain flour. Yeah. You get it to rise. Yeah. Why? Okay, so the reason I, I work with whole grain flours, besides that I, you know, I'm kind of a hippie and believe in whole grains, but um, is this, and this is kind of cool. Our microbiome, I'm going to get really sciencey here. So if you get sleepy, come up and get a snack. Okay. <laughs> But I've got two students here, ex-students, from Bastyr, and they, they won't get sleepy, will you? No, they like the science, yeah. Great, great gals there. Anyway, um, so we have this thing called the microbiome, which is how many billion my, any bacteria in your gut. And uh, I started studying the microbiome and reading all the books about it in 2005 or something, and actually went to a couple of the Andrew Weil conferences, and I demonstrated um, Krauts there, but I also listened to all these PhDs and all these microbiome experts talk about it. And it's like the next wave of science, of medicine, really, is understanding how the microbiome. And the microbiome, um, and again, we don't know a lot about it yet, but we know some things. And it runs the immune system in your body. It controls inflammation. It controls weight. It controls mood. It's crazy what's going on down there. They've even found that, I'm sure you've read about this, that you can inoculate somebody with a bunch of problems with bacteria from somebody else, and it repopulates and they, they get better. That's pretty crazy. So one of the things that keeps... The, the, the bacteria in the gut, like every living thing, like this starter, like this, like this, needs food to grow. What's the food for the bacteria in the gut? What? Fiber. Yes, fiber. And the microbiome, which is the part of the food that we can't utilize for energy in any way. It, and we just think, oh, it helps our bowel movements move. But it's way more important than that. It's food for the bacteria. And um, so the microbiome experts recommend 35 grams of fiber a day to stay healthy. 
and most Americans get 15. So that's a big jump. And you're like, well, I'll try to eat more broccoli. But I actually, at one point at the beginnings of writing this book, um, I had a master student at Bastyr help me make a chart of fiber, foods and fiber, foods and fiber. And the fruits and vegetables are great and everything, but there's, they just don't compare at all in amount of fiber per volume to whole grains and beans. No way, not a chance. So I want everybody's got to be better. So I worked with all whole grains. Most of my breads are 75% whole grains, which is tricky. So here's the thing. So if you're the microorganisms in your gut, the bacteria in your gut, don't you don't have enough fiber. You're the McDonald's for breakfast and McDonald's for lunch person and then come home and have pizza and you haven't had any fiber in there hardly at all day after day after day after day after day. And they're, they're hungry. What are they going to eat? What's going to happen? What? Some people say, well, they'll die. Well, the thing is, think about this. Things in nature don't want to die. Things in nature will work really hard and do all kinds of crazy things not to die. And the, the microbes in your gut, they'll start eating the mucus lining of your gut in order to survive. And pretty soon, if that gets really, 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 really thin, then it gets too permeable and people can have a lot of food allergies or maybe worse, or maybe inflammation, or something like that. So this one scientist that works in the Berkeley area, oh, remember his name, Cynthia, please, I'll get there, um, who used to come to the, the Andrew Weil conferences, did the ultimate selfie. He took a picture of the lining of his gut, and then for six months, he upped his fiber to uh, 35, 40 grams a day. And at the end of that, he took another picture, and it had thickened out. In his book, you get to see the pictures. And a nice, sturdy lining in that gut is, right, ladies? Yeah, that's a good, good thing. That was the longest, longest reasoning behind using whole grains I've ever said in my life. (laughs) Yes, and there are so many benefits to the sourdough. There's so many that I brought a cheat sheet because I forget some of them sometimes. But um, that flavor that you love is good. It's wonderful. But it also, that sour taste stimulates um, enzymes in your mouth that begin the digestive pr- process. So that's good. The, sitting around with microbes uh, creates something called, um, why don't I bring, oh, phytase, which negates the phytic acid, which binds up certain minerals. So more minerals are available to you with this bread making process. The high fibers there, it's prebiotic because of the fiber, because of the, all in the grains. It's probiotic because some of them survive. And this was my favorite one, maybe. There's so many. The glycemic index of this bread is so low that if it's made with whole grains like all of these are, it's safe for di- diabetics. Think about that. That's pretty impressive. Yeah. And the shelf life is much, much longer too, again, because of the acids in the bread. So in the winter, I mean, I just keep my bread kind of in a loose wrap like this on the counter and it, it, it stays pretty good for, I don't know, what, four or five days? Yeah, at least. Yeah. Any more question periods? Question period. Yes, sir. 
Any quick tips for someone who's making uh, bread for the first time with a new starter? Well, first of all, I just, like I said, I make sure that you like, oh, okay, I get you, right? And you're good with your starter. I think you need to have that sort of like, I know, I got a thing going here. And then the book is organized from pretty easy recipes to harder recipes. And so if you've never baked bread, bread before at all, I'd start out with the pancakes and the biscuits and the, or, or that Danish rye bread, which is a batter bread. That's, you're not going to fail on that. Um, or some of the flat breads, even naan. I love naan. Anyway, uh, and then work your way to something like a loaf. Uh, which takes a little more, it doesn't take t- hands-on time, but it just takes a little more conscientiousness. So, so yeah, if you didn't have a taste of something, we have more. And um, thank you so much for coming. Many thanks to Cynthia Lair for visiting us in our kitchen. As always, you can get 10% off a copy of Sourdough on the Rise and any other books featured on the Booklarder podcast by visiting booklarder.com and entering the code PODCAST at checkout. We have signed copies of many of the featured books, so be sure to get one of those while they last. And if you visit us in the shop, just mention that you heard about a book on the podcast for 10% off in-store as well. This episode was produced and edited by Abby Circatella. Our theme music was composed by James Coley. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, and we'd appreciate it if you leave us a review. You can also follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, where our handle is at BookLarder. For more information about BookLarder, including author talks, cooking classes, and to join our monthly email newsletter, visit BookLarder.com. And if you find yourself in Seattle, visit us in person at 4252 Fremont Avenue North. I'm Laura Hamilton. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time.